This is Henry Rollins, and you are listening to Signal to Noise. Consider yourself lucky. This is David Austin from Megadeth, and you are here with Signal to Noise. Hey, this is Joe from the Icarus Line, and you're listening to Signal to Noise. You are listening to a presentation of the Cast Iron Ring Network. For more great content like this, head to castironring.com, your number one source for the best music podcasts on the net. Hello and welcome to episode 22 of the Signal to Noise podcast. I'm your host, Aaron, and I am back with a fun-filled episode for you guys. So let's get into just some updates. So on episode 21, I had Pete uh, Holm of the um, Firefly Pick on talking all about that. I want to give you guys a project update. As of right now, as I'm recording this, they have 14 days to go, $22,000 raised out of 30000 It's close. So if you're looking for, again, for something interesting, um, I've seen a lot of posts saying, oh, this will make a great Christmas gift if you have a guitarist on your list, or maybe you know somebody who never knows what gift to get you, this would be a great thing to suggest. So go out there, support this project, get behind it. Um, I really, really, really want to see this come to light. So that's some interesting stuff here. So at the top of the show, you heard the Cast Iron Ring. Um, well, the Cast Iron Ring promo, I guess, for lack of a better term. Cast Iron Ring is the network of podcasts I'm a part of. we got a lot of great shows, so head over to castironring.com and check those guys out. I know you hear me talk about John, Rock, and Scott all the time. Those are all three different shows, Radioactive Metal, Focus on Metal, and Iron City Rocks. Um, so, you know, there's great content coming out there. Plus, we've got Wiki Metal, we've got um, Bob Nalbandi and the Shockwaves, we've got the Bonehand Heavy Half Hour, Victor's Podcast, Mars Attacks, we've got um, Carl in the UK with Weird Ways. I think I got everybody this time. I don't think I missed anybody. But so a lot of great content out there, so let's check it out. All right, now let's start talking about who we're talking to tonight. Okay, so tonight's interview is with Joe Cardamone. He is a um, singer, guitarist in the punk band, or I guess proto-punk. I, I hate using the term punk for these guys because there's so much more you'll you'll see when I uh, play their music here. But it's called The Icarus Line. They have a brand new um, album out called Slave Vows. Check it out. It's worth it. You're here to talk about it in the interview. The opening track, Dark Circles, masterpiece. Absolute masterpiece. It's almost 11 minutes long. Just absolute masterpiece. Check it out. So Joe and I have a very interesting talk. Um, he's in California. You see interesting things on the California highway, as you'll hear in this interview. And before we start the interview, let's listen to the, the track Marathon Man.
with the problems are a waste of time It's a pleasure to amuse you, the pleasure is all mine Entertain us, so why you frame us a picture of your health My beautification, your celebration, the monkey fucks its well Joe Cardamone of Icarus Line. Joe, how you doing, buddy? It's hot. We're in traffic. <laughs> we're, on the, we're on the five south. Nice. Anyone who knows about that knows it's a fucking turns into a fucking asphalt graveyard. Oh, that's making me laugh. So you've got got quite the um, quite the California traffic jam going. Oh yeah. So <clears throat> only my second time in California since we're talking about California traffic. I was out in uh, Sacramento. Well, actually, we were out in Folsom. We had to drive to Sacramento to fly out. And um, all of a sudden, traffic starts slowing down. I'm like, what's going on? So I kick on the radio a little bit louder, and there had been a carjacking. Oh, wow. I know. I'm like, wow, it's kind of exciting. Like, you hear about these things on the news, you never think you get to experience it. So, yeah, I'm, I'm with you, man. That was that was um, quite a gridlock that you day. You got lucky. Yeah. yeah. I think there's a fire up here. Oh, my. Yeah. So we're going to go drive through it. Well, all right. All right. <clears throat> so... Joe, let's talk about Icarus Line here. So you guys have been going for about 10 years or so, roughly. Um, and the new record coming out is Slave Vows. So when will Slave Vows be out? I think it's out now. I think it's currently out. Um, it's out in the U.S., like, digitally. And then it comes out in the U.K., I think, in a couple of weeks. I don't know the date. And then uh, next week, physical copies will start arriving at stores, like the vinyl and the CDs start showing up in shops all over the place. Cool, cool, cool. So, um, what was the writing process like, like for this record? Um, it was pretty, uh, pretty rapid compared to other records that we've done. We spent a, a good deal of the year on tour last year in the U.S., Europe, U.K., all over the place. And when we came home, we just wanted to fit one out real quick. So, it was about two weeks, you know? We, wow. We sat down with some ideas that had I had seeds of that I was working on maybe while we were at, on tour and a little bit after we got home. Oh, shit. We just saw the, the car burnt to the ground. A car burnt to the ground. Wow. Anyways, we wrote, we wrote, wrote the record uh, really quick. Two weeks, three weeks, something like that. But the kind of record it is, it's the kind of record you write while you're recording it. You know what I mean? Okay. Because everything was recorded live or nearly live 
so you're you're capturing performances that uh, are you know they're completely different from take to take. We only kind of have notions of when what the lengths are at certain parts. You know, keeping an eye out for uh, signals from various people in the band. So, you know, we strap together some, some structures and loose themes, and then I kind of orchestrate from uh, the middle of the room by acting like a jackass. Nice. Yeah. So let, let's talk about like, that performance aspect of it, because as I listen to the record... <clears throat> That was very evident. Like, like there's, it was like somebody was conducting the whole thing. Like I, I, when I listen to it, I kind of equate it to what it would sound like to me when you see somebody who's painting by just throwing paint off their brushes. Like there, it looks like there's this chaos kind of thing going on, but yet you're creating a masterpiece. So the first track, Dark Circles, this is one of those tracks where I've listened to it probably two or three times. The guy who sits behind me at work, I turned around yesterday. I said, hey, you need to listen to this right now. And he put it on. He's like, okay, who is this band again? I'm going to go go get this record. Because it starts out, six minutes is all built up. I, I cannot tell you the last time I've, I've heard a band that would take six minutes before getting to like the meat of the song, so to speak, with you know vocals, lyrics, that sort of thing. So how did that come about? Like, Was that what you intended, or is this one of those times where you're like, you know what, let's just keep going and going and going until we're ready and just kind of capture that live performance in the studio? I think that's probably a product of the fact that we had been playing live a lot and a lot of the songs that we were playing in the set have, you know, designated portions to just be extended indefinitely, depending on what's happening in the room, how we're feeling, um not really jam band in the traditional sense because that's not really the idea behind it just kind of uh, I guess kind of letting the moment sort of influence you and determine between everyone like having some sort of collective like decision without words that song in particular Dark Circles kind of was always intended and uh, arranged to have a, a ramp up but you know we never really discussed how long it would be you know there was just like hey when I do this do this and when he does that you do that and everyone just don't do anything until you feel like it's time to do it if that makes sense well it absolutely does because being a musician and, and it's one of those things where I don't think Someone who's not played in a band, especially in a live situation, is going to pick up on. But I, I can remember making these sort of decisions, especially on stage. Like, okay, everybody make eye contact. We're, we're going to do this. You know, you, you start to, especially when you play for, with a group of guys for a while or any group of musicians, you start to understand each other. You can read each other's body language. You you, you feel that, that collective vibe together, you know? Yeah, that's like imperative for what we do, really. We don't really, you know, we don't do a lot of like first chorus sort of stuff. I, you know, when we play live, I could start the verse five bars late one night or a bar early. You know, it doesn't, there, there's really, there's really no predicting what's going to happen with the songs from night to night. Obviously, there's landmarks with, within the structures to kind of uh, give people something to grab onto. But, uh, yeah, I, I, 
it's the only way to keep it interesting for me anyways. Nice. Yeah, like that first track, like because I remember listening to it and it's building and building, and something just made me look down at my iPod to take a look to see how, how long this was, and I started realizing that we were four minutes in already. I'm like, wow, and I didn't even realize it had been that long. I'm like, okay, so what's gonna happen next? And it just it kept me really intrigued, and as I listened to it, like I I kept getting this vibe of like the black Black Flag meets the Cure, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I just I that opening track like I can I cannot tell you the last time I've been that struck by the opening track on a record, like, and obviously you can tell my age if I'm saying record, but still, like it was it just a record. yeah, just man, it just hits you. It was such I, such a great way to open. Well, I'm I'm glad I'm glad you dig it. Um, yeah, I mean it it is a record. It's a document. You know that's what that's what these things are. You're just really documenting live performances or. Per- or you know semi-stacked performances by uh, by artists. You know all all my favorite musical uh, experiences are kind of kind of you know evolved that way. So you know. Well, and I'm so glad to hear that you know you want to capture that live performance too. Because I mean, when I think of how recording started, where you had one microphone and all the musicians in the room were spaced out accordingly. Like that's how you mix. You didn't have a mixer. You just put people a certain distance from the mic and you had to figure out how to balance it, how to balance, how loud you're playing. And everybody had one shot. Don't screw this up in the room. Yeah. You know, and now with infinite takes, I think we lose some of that. Yeah. I mean, that was kind of the scenario with this record is we did that. We put all the amps in the same room like minimally baffled. So the drums, the amps, everything was in the same room. We weren't wearing headphones. Um, We were monitoring off of our, you know, amplifiers. So, you know, not to get too nerdy about it, but that's basically what we had to do. We had to balance it to some extent in the room. I mean, things are, you know, spot mics, there's only so much separation and that wasn't really a concern anyways. We weren't worried about separation, but you know, you have to get it right in the room in order for it to sound right anywhere else. If you're going to do it that way. Agreed. Now, how much room sound comes, comes through in the recording and how much is like added reverb later? There's fairly little reverb. Probably. I don't think I used any reverb actually on most of it. Okay. The only stuff that sounds like reverb would be me pumping, you know, a tambourine or a snare out into my hallway that I use as a chamber um, and wheeling a speaker out there and throwing a, a microphone down at the other end. So there's no reverb used. There's some reverb on the vocal, but that's just on the space echo that I had my vocal running through while I was tracking it. Nice. So any reverb heard is kind of was done as either part of the performance, which all of the vocal effects I did live, you know, I wanted, I do this, I produce records for a living. So I didn't want to have to deal with the, the shit I do normally, where I have to, you know, wait to make decisions. I set it up, there's a space echo and some other echo flex on the vocal as I'm tracking it. I'm changing the times and levels as I'm singing, doing it live, so that I don't ever have to think about that. You know, when it comes time to mix, it's there, deal with it, 
that's what it is. Same thing goes with drums. The only after-the-fact thing that I would have put on drums is running it out to a speaker in the hallway back to tape. Um, besides that, I didn't use any reverb. So let's talk about that speaker in the hall- hallway trick. So, so many studios today are using, you know, super expensive plugins or you know other outboard effects of some sort for the reverb. So why are you going, you know, to some people they might consider it low tech, but I consider it just old school brilliance. So what what's making you favor hallway with a speaker? Well, it just was the sound I wanted more than anything because I wanted to keep the sound of the building. I wanted to kind of keep the purity of that, the integrity of what the place sounds like. Yeah. Um, and I did want to bring in outside reflections you know, from the out, outboard gear or plugins, I didn't want to bring that into the mix and kind of smear the integrity of what my studio sounds like. And to me, it just sounded better anyway, because I didn't want long reverb. I, you know, the tre- there's a there's a trend in indie music right now. There's just slap reverb on any everything, and that's the sound. Yeah. And, like, it doesn't excite me. It doesn't really sound real. I didn't really want reverb. I just wanted to extend the room a couple feet. You know, and you know? I, I so understand where you're coming from. Because I'll sit here and I'll try to make mixed decisions when I'm doing stuff in my home studio. And I have a sound in my head that I want. And I'm in a pretty small room in my house here. But um, I have the sound in my head that I want. And I go through the plugins. I can't find a single plugin that mimics it. And so talking with you... Um, I, I'm really getting get, getting kind of like that creative spark going where I'm thinking I have a pretty echoey bathroom here. I could toss something over there, feed the feed the signal back. Like I I I, I really like the creative aspect of what you're doing with these sounds. Thanks. Yeah, I, I mean, I feel I feel like in order to have a unique stamp, you have to get physical with things. You know, um, changing the settings on a piece of gear that everybody has, it doesn't feel that fun to me. And if it's not really going to be a fun, you know, why would I do it? Why would I be in a band and make records? I, you know, I completely agree. Cause I know I have uh, certain pedals. I remember when I got those pedals, you know, everybody was getting the same pedals, the DODs, the boss pedals that I had. And I was a bass player, so they had the bass chorus, and there's a certain way bass chorus is supposed to sound. And I'm like, you know what? No, I'm going to turn everything all the way up. And they're like, why are you going to do that? I'm like, because I want to see what it sounds like. I want to do something unique. And I don't play with it all the time, but when I wanted that unique sound nobody else can touch, I've got it. Yeah, you know, exactly. By, by messing around here. And the use of pedals on this record I, I blew me away. And I was looking at your gear list for, uh, for the Valley recording company and said that you guys have like this numerous array of pedals. So what were the pedal board setups like? Like I heard a lot of tremolo, at least I think it was tremolo. Yeah, there's definitely, it's, it's actually uh, probably a lot simpler than you would think. Uh, mostly my guitar was just an overdrive, like a color sound, an old color sound overdrive into some fuzz box. I don't know. I switched out a different fuzz every song. Not for any reason in particular, but just to, you know, have have some tonal complexities. Uh, a, a wah pedal that has, you know, some mods done to it. 
tremolo into a reverb. That's it. That's pretty much all I used on the entire record. Oh. And that, that goes for everyone, really. The, the organ and Wurlitzer had a couple weird little octave settles here and there. I think uh, that electro-harmonic ring thing was something that we used okay. a, a lot on the Wurlitzer to kind of bring it out of Wurlitzer land because, you know, we don't need another record with a Wurlitzer on it right now. <laughs> So what kind of tremolo did you use? Because I'm, I'm really a tremolo nerd. I just picked up a Demeter tremolo um, when I was on a recent business trip here, and I, I the, love it. The Zvex Sonar. It's pretty much the best one out there. Okay. It's the best, it's the best one I've heard anyway, you know? It's extremely versatile, but, man, it goes, it goes for days. It works, it works well for a group like ours that has a lot of... Uh, if you're pushing a lot of noise through it, it handles it extremely well. Where other tremolos would kind of crap out and be overpowered by it. Yeah. It it doesn't it doesn't even bat an eye. Nice. And you said that's the Zvex sonar. Yeah. Okay. I'm gonna be looking that one up. And like, they make they make great fit. I, well, I've been wanting to check some of their stuff out. I always, I always hear about them. So now, now, like again, like I have a tremolo addiction. I've got a Boss tremolo sitting right beside me. My Demeter, I have a Marshall Vibra Trem. Um, I've got a Voodoo Labs Trem that I love. Hi. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't even know why I like them so much. I just love that sound. Um, now, for fuzz, did you use any of the Death by Audio fuzz pedals by any chance? Did, well, come again? Did you use any of the Death by Audio fuzz pedals? Oh, like, uh, hold on, let me close the window. I got blasted. Not a problem. Come again? Um, well, the, the fuzz pedals like there were a couple sounds on there that reminded me of um, the death by audio fuzz pedal, pedals like I have one oh the death by audio yeah. fuzz boxes no I just get those sounds with my hand so you have one that's, it sounded like I can't even describe the sound and I'm trying to remember I think it might have been on, on the fourth track I don't have my iPod handy um, is that dead body it might have been on dead body but, but where it sounds it sounds like complete sonic breakup, and you're starting to get like some, almost like some synth blips and things out of there. Yeah, on, honestly, a, a lot of the distortion tones yeah. would be the way the guitar is played. I'm usually using a metal pick. Okay. Into a basement, like one of those basement tweed reissues. Yeah. And. That's been modified as well. So I'm using pretty standard shit, but I have a tech, this guy Roy, and he has a place called Valley Sound, and he does a lot of amp repairs. He used to actually be uh, chief tech over at Sound Factory. Killer. And Yeah, so he's, he's fucking awesome. Not only was he chief tech at Sound Factory... But he was also into good music. He was into punk bands, into all kinds of noise rock bands. He knows what... He has, like, a vernacular for what the fuck we're going after. Yeah. So not only is he extremely knowledgeable in gear from the floor to the walls, but he also knows what music sounds like. Um, so he works with me on a lot of my gear. And we kind of... I'll, there hasn't been a concept that I've thrown at him 
that he hasn't been able to do. That's um, awesome. Yeah, it's great. It's great. So a lot of it is minor tweaks to normal gear or semi-normal gear. But I would say the biggest portion of it, and what I tell everyone, is 90% of tone is in your fucking hand. I agree with that. You know, it's in your hand. It's like, if you can, I could, I could play any piece of firewood and it would sound like me, you know? Yep. So that's, that's where it's at, really. So I am curious about some of the mods here, because I, I, um, I was reading an article on Tony Iommi, I think it was in Guitar World, and he was talking about where, um, was it Rick Rubin that produced him, I think, recently, where he's trying to go back and get like all the old classic Sabbath tones, so he's bringing these old amps, and he's like, listen, they're not going to sound like that. And they're like, well, why? He's like, because those amps didn't sound like that. We had them worked on. And I find it you know, amusing that you're really coming from from the same standpoint. You start with a bass, and you say, no, I want to tweak this. So like, what... What is it that you tweak when you sit down to a tweak, or what, I guess what's the thought process there when you say you want to mod something? Basically, when we're like moving past, moving past, uh, just doing it with your hands. Yeah. Um, I mean, for this for this record, we I did not put a lot of thought into any of uh, any of it. I really just tried to make sure the mic was in front of the speaker or near the drum, you know? There was no compression, no EQ. It all just went straight to tape. Um, I would tweak things here and there, but, you know, nothing nothing to write home about, you know? When you're doing it live in the room, being in the moment and playing, uh, playing to the actual air that's being pushed around, that's usually all the tweaking you need. Um, when it came to the mix stage, you know, that's a whole different animal. Was, was this a hard record to mix with the way you recorded it, or was it pretty easy because you had already kind of captured that sound already when you started? Kind of, kind of a little of both. Um, it's hard because it's your own music. It's always the worst. You always hate it by the time you're done mixing it. There's no way not to, like, go through the gamut of emotion, you know? Yeah. Um, easy because you know you know where it needs to go, especially when it's recorded this way. You know where you want it to be. You've already kind of done most of the conceptual work in the room. The concept's there. Now it's just your job to kind of uh, do some quality control and maximize the potential of what you've captured. So, you know, you can tear your hair out about it, or you can just have fun. And, you know, for a week or so, I sat there and got over-analytical and wanted to quit making music like everybody does when they're mixing their own records. Which is, you know, I did it by necessity. I never would have done it if I could afford it. If I could have afforded to have someone help, by all means, I would have done it. This was completely by necessity. Um, You know, and then at a certain point, you're like, well, what the fuck? Why do I even care? Like, let's just, let me have fun. Like, I'm listening to my stereo. And end up start uh, performing mixes just like you performed in the room to keep it alive. I mean, that's really what 
what I ended up doing was I start pushing faders and playing along to the band playing it on tape, and next thing you know, it has life again, you know? Yeah. I think if you do that all the way down the chain, it, it can translate. Huh. That's a really, like, it was a very interesting approach to mixing. Because everything else I've seen, most people sit down very analytically. And that's that's the first time I've heard it equated to performance. And the more I think about it, you're right. Because, I mean, before we had automation, you really did have to perform. Exactly. You Before automation, you had to perform. And I can do some of it in Pro Tools. But, you know, I'll do some vocal rides or something so that I don't have to do that during yeah. the song. That's taken care of. Because that's kind of a tedious sort of thing anyways, which can take you out of the moment. You know, I'll write a, I'll write a fucking vocal ride and then just play the band along with them. You know, I mean, I think Lee Scratch Perry has done that for years, too. I think he had his, like, console installed at standing height so he yeah. could stand and play, play along to the songs. And I don't see why, you know, that's... A, that's a great way to be. Yeah. Yeah, I gotta agree with that. So, how did you get into recording in the first place? Um, I knew my time was running out in in the in the record label universe. I knew that there, people were going to stop giving us money. It was a fluke that we ever got money in the first place. You know, um, I saw a chance to take a record budget and turn it into some gear so that I would be able to continue to do this for the for as long as I'm capable of doing it and no one could stop me. I mean, that's always the main agenda is to continue making art. So, you know, it was, it was another, you know, progression out of necessity. I would rather work with a team of people when it comes to recording. I'm not so much a control freak when it when it comes to producing a record. I think that a team can make a better record than one person by themselves 90% of the time. But, you know, I was at a certain point where it was like, look, I can buy gear, make a record by myself, and then hopefully figure out a way to parlay that into including others down the line, which has, you know, happened since then. Man, that's cool. That's a cool journey there. Um, and I mean, you're right. The music business is just such a tough industry to to get into to survive in. Yeah. So it was good it that really you saw is. an opportunity there. Yeah, I mean, I saw it as a slight business opportunity. I mean, there's that old joke that my friend Musumano told me: uh, How do you make a a large fortune in the recording studio business, or how do you make a small fortune in the recording studio business? You start with a large one. <laughs> um, you know, it's not a, it's, it's definitely not a get rich quick scheme. Yeah. The only, uh, so I, I guess the main appeal that it has to me is that I can usually work with people that I respect and help people that might actually need my help. You know, um, it, I sort of get by financially. I definitely do not go on vacation. Um, and my hands are starting to fall off because of, because at the, the rate I work or for the money I work for, I should say, I don't know how much longevity there is 
in me being uh, a sole engineer in the studio. My hands are like shot from it. And yeah. that's only, you know, the last four years. And I like doing it, but I don't like doing it enough to lose my hands. Yeah, I'm with you there. You know? So what's next for for the Icarus line then? Do you guys have a tour planned out, planned out to support this record? We do. Um, right now we're on our way to San Diego. It's kind of a warm-up gig because we're doing a record release at the Roxy on Friday in Los Angeles. Um, there's some festival dates and things lined up here and there. And then I think we're going to do the U.K. and Europe starting October some some of it with the cult, some of it headlining on our own. You know, we're, we're not always the best at planning ahead. Um, it's, you know, we're a rock and roll band. We, we just kind of, we show up when we can, when we can afford to do it. And, uh, yeah, we're going to go out as much as we can afford to. That's basically the idea. All right, so that was our interview with Joe. So thanks, guys, for tuning in. Something that, that Joe talked about that we kind of talked about in the interview I really wanted to expand on. Um, I did a podcast when I was in Nashville, and I talked about mods, right? And I talked about, you know, we're always trying to go back and create classic gear, um, but are we? why are we trying to re- recreate classic gear if the classic gear wasn't even the classic gear, right? And so what I'm getting at is the story about Tony Iommi and Rick Rubin and Rick saying, hey, let's go back and get all these old amps he used to use. And he's saying, hey, we modded those. You know, he talked about um, the high watt he got from Pete Townsend, and it didn't sound anything like Pete's because Pete had his completely modded. And talking with Joe, Joe has some very standard gear that any one of us can get a hold of. But um, what he does is he has the tech he works with that he talked about, and he mods that gear. He says, hey, can we do this? Can we make this tweak? So that's really what it's all about. And that's why last episode I said I'm so proud to be living in this time because we have all the benefit of the knowledge of the past. We have all this technology. And now is really the best time to get gear. I mean, yeah, there's always that, oh, I want this old sound. But do we? Is the old sound we really want the old sound that was really made? Or is there somebody new going, hey, I bet you I can make this sound better? I'm not saying that something new, something modern is always the best thing, but it's really a good thing because it keeps us trying things new and, and trying things. So the classic sound that you think is the classic sound may not have been as is. If there may have been modifications made. And I guess what I'm really getting out is let's go out there and make some modifications, right? Let's, let's, look, let's seek those things out. Let's find those. I know that I am more than ever rekindled and interested in electronics and how these sounds work and how to start making my own mods Armed with soldering iron, I am probably going to make a lot of mistakes, but I will be um, scrubbing eBay's, used stores, um, Craigslist, looking for really cheap gear that it won't matter if I break. Um, So this really is just a great, great time to be a musician, to be looking for gear, because there's so many people coming out with just new, interesting things or old twists on other stuff. But I really, it really was um, struck by Joe's old school approach. You know, it's not the plugins, it's not the, you know, Pro Tools rig. It's, hey, I like the sound of this hallway. I'm going to put a speaker at this end, a mic on that end, and capture it like they would have back in the 50s when they started this thing on analog tape. So there's something to be said for the technique. You know, Joe talks a lot about it. He's like, hey, tone starts with your hands. You put any piece of wood in my hands, it's going to sound like me. So 
I took a lot away from that, you know, and, and I started really thinking about that. No matter what bass I've played, I always sound like me. I can always get my sound. So really, we need to take the time to hone the technique and think creatively, right? This, the effects, all these other things, they're color. And I will definitely be thinking differently about my next project, uh, which actually I'm kind of working on right now with a buddy in Nashville. So that being said, guys, thanks for tuning in. Um, looking forward to the next podcast. I know I've been trying to keep these out pretty regularly. And until next time, make some noise. Thank <laughs> you.